Well, hey, what's up, friends? I got a question for you. Have you ever been in a situation that just felt impossible to make the right decision out of? Or have you ever felt like, man, what is actually going on? on here and what's the best way to handle this? I remember almost a decade ago, I was preaching to a group of high school students and I thought my sermon was great. I was feeling really fantastic about it. And then all of a sudden this girl in the very front row, she got a phone call and she had her ringer on and that, that happens, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the phone starts to ring and, and, and everyone kind of looks at her and, and usually, you know, you would kind of silence that. But all of a sudden this girl, she, she pulls her phone out of her pocket and she answers it and she literally says these words. She says, hey, no, I'm not busy. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? You're not busy? You're sitting on the front row right here. I, I remember recently I was at a camp or a conference speaking to a group of high school students and I happened to be preaching through the book of Jonah. And I got to tell you, this was one of the most difficult groups that I've ever spoken to because these kids were having so many side conversations in the middle of my sermon. They were almost talking as loud as I was talking. It was incredibly distracting and and I think I was tired and, and feeling frustrated and, and I'm preaching through the book of Jonah. And I got to be honest, up to this point, I judged Jonah, right? Like I massively judged the guy. I thought, you know, God wants to save Nineveh and here you are complaining and getting angry about that. But can I be honest with you, as I was preaching through Jonah, I started to feel like Jonah. I started to feel like these kids were Ninevites and I was like, they don't deserve God's love, right? They deserve God's wrath. I think the question is, how do we actually respond to some of those situations and some of those moments that just seem absolutely impossible? And I think today's text is actually going to help us think differently and respond differently as followers of Jesus or those who are exploring him. It's why the title for today's sermon is this, how to actually think about Satan, Jesus, and what it means to be a Christian. Now, we've review this almost every single week. So I'm going to fly through it. We've been using four different views, four different ways of interpreting Revelation to help us through this book. The historicist approach is really saying the book of Revelation from beginning to end is surveying the whole of church history from the beginning of church history all the way to the end. The preterist approach says, no, the book of Revelation is really about the early church. What happened in the first and second century? The futurist approach says, no, the book of Revelation is actually preparing us for what the future church will experience. And then the symbolic approach to studying Revelation says, no, Revelation is like kind of a repeated experience that every church has throughout the ages. Now, as we're going to dive into Revelation chapter 12 and 13, I want to introduce you you to some of the characters and the ways that different people have viewed them. So here are the characters of specifically Revelation chapter 12. There's a pregnant woman. And if you're a futurist, you see that as Israel. But if you're a historicist, you would see the pregnant woman as the church. Then there's a male child. The futurist sees this as Jesus, but the historicist sees this as the children of the church. Then there's the woman's offspring, the pregnant woman's offspring. If you're a futurist, you 
you see this as the Jewish converts. But if you're a historicist or a preterist, you would see the woman's offspring as the church. And then lastly, we'll meet the dragon. And if you're a futurist, you would see this as Satan. Or if you're a historicist, you would see it as Satan and maybe even beyond that as persecutors or enemies of the church. Now, in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, there's this great battle going on. And, and some think that it's the battle, the moment that Satan was kicked out of heaven. And, and others would see this battle as actually being what happened when Jesus Christ was crucified and risen from the dead through his death and resurrection. He defeated sin, death, and Satan. And so that is what actually is being described here, some would say. They would point to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, verse 15 where Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So what I want to do with our time together is I want to talk about what does Satan actually do? Then we're going to look at what does it actually mean to be a Christian? Then we're going to talk about how Satan actually uses lies, pride, and slander to tear the world apart. And then we're going to land the plane talking about how Jesus actually holds us together by making us patient, faithful, and wise. Let's start with this. What does Satan actually do? Number one, Satan is leading the whole world astray. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says this, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. You see, this is really important that we recognize Satan is not playing games with us. He's not trying to kind of throw us off or trip us. No, Satan is in the business of hunting. Satan is trying to steal, kill, and destroy your life. It's why the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus, he warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to tickle, looking for someone to kind of play games with. No, looking for someone to devour. Friends, you have have an enemy and his name is Satan and his sole focus is to destroy you to 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 mess with your life number 2 satan is angry because his days are numbered. Revelation chapter 12 verse 12 says, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. You see, why is Satan so angry? Why is he so enraged? Here's why. Because he knows that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to live for all of eternity in the presence of God, in the community of believers, in the new heaven and the new earth. And he knows that he will be destroyed. I mean, every day for Satan is a bad day. And so he's trying to take the world down with him. Number three, Satan wages a war 
wages war against Christians. Revelation chapter 12 verse 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Let's hold that second part in our brains for a minute because we're going to get to that in a few moments. But the enemy, Satan, he is waging a war against Christians. That's just helpful to remember Because if he truly is waging a war against you and I, then he's going to show up in our lives trying to distract us, trying to to steal, rob, kill, destroy things in our lives. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was having lunch with Eric and Suzanne Evans, and we went to this amazing taco place here in Pomona. And I just got to tell you, all of the best theological conversations happen over a carne asada taco. I mean, that's just the reality Tacos bring about glorified conversations about Jesus. It's just, it's just real. It's fact. It happens. And, and during this conversation, we were talking about the book of Revelation. And Eric said this line that I just thought was such a helpful reminder about the book of Revelation. Eric said this, Revelation was written to a group of persecuted Christians, encouraging them to persevere in the face of persecution because Jesus wins in the end. That's a great reminder of the entire book of Revelation is written to a group of persecuted Christians, encouraging them to persevere. Now, one of the ways that Satan loves to wage war against Christians is by reminding us of our past. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. You see, Satan loves to accuse us. And one of the things he accuses us of is our past. And why does Satan love to go to our past? It's because there's nothing we can do about it. It's because it's already happened. And and if you've lived for any amount of time, there's stuff in your past that you wish you didn't do, that you wish wasn't there. And and friends, if, if you're struggling right now to follow Jesus because every time you seem to get close to him, every time you pick up his word and spend time with him, God, Satan, Satan reminds you of your past, reminds you of your struggles. You need to remember that's what he does, but you are not judged by those things because you have been forgiven in Christ, because you have received his forgiveness. So maybe it's past sins that Satan is throwing at you, or maybe it's some past abuse or trauma that you've experienced. And and Satan would tell you, keep those things to yourself. Don't share about them. They're they're so shameful. And he keeps you isolated. Can I remind you and maybe just tell you for the first time if you've experienced any kind of abuse or trauma, the first thing God wants you to do is be honest about it. You see, God is never gonna ask you to keep a secret. He's never gonna ask you to keep hidden what is true. That a part of your healing and a part of you moving away from maybe Satan's hold over you with your past abuse and trauma is to be honest with it. And then God wants to bring you into healing relationships. He wants to bring you into a healing relationship with himself. 
He wants to bring you into a healing relationship with others, with life groups, with, with therapists, with community that can support you. And then God would want to use your abuse and trauma to encourage someone else, to love someone else. You see, Satan, he's waging a war against you. He wants to keep you in your past. He wants to keep you isolated and disconnected. And Jesus, oh, Jesus has so much more for you. He has freedom. He has forgiveness for past sins. He has healing for trauma and abuse and pain that you have endured. The next movement, I think, in our study of Revelation 12 is, is to look at what does it actually mean to be a Christian? So we just talked about what does Satan actually do, but what does it actually mean to be a Christian? Because that label, that term Christian, is getting thrown around all over the place. And, and there doesn't seem to be a consensus for what that word, what that term, what that even means. And I want us to spend some time talking about that today. You see, the word Christian first shows up in the New Testament in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. It, it becomes clear that this group of non-believing, non-Christian people from Antioch in modern-day Syria are the first to call these people who are followers of Jesus Christians. And why do they get called Christians? Because the word Christian literally means little Christ. That's what Christian means. It means to imitate Christ. It means to be like Christ, to be little Christ. And so what does that actually look like? Well, number one, Christians, Christians always remember Jesus has saved them, not their own behavior. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now I've come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then look at what it says. They triumphed over him, over Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. The most powerful weapon you and I have against Satan is the reality that it is the sacrifice of Christ. It is our sin on him, his righteousness given to us, his death and resurrection, taking our place, giving up himself for us because he loves us. It is his death and his resurrection that saves you and that saves me. Here's the problem. It's so difficult for Christians. When you've been a Christian for a while, it can be so difficult to remember that. And in fact, the longer you're a Christian, the easier it is to begin to believe the lie that it's actually my own behavior that saved me. It's the things I haven't done that saved me. 
It's the way I've lived righteously for God that has saved me. The truth is, friends, none of our behaviors have saved us. It is the generosity, the graciousness, the the mercy, the love of God and God alone that has saved you and I. And I'm telling you, this is how we stay humble as Christians. This is how we thrive. If we could wake up every morning and before we go and do anything, just sort of replay in our minds. I'm forgiven. I'm free in Christ. I'm loved. I'm called. I'm chosen, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. Oh, that'll lighten your load. Oh, that'll, that'll put a, a, a kick in your step. That, that'll get you going. Number two, Christians boldly share their testimony. The question would be, what has Christ done for you? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, this is, this is really interesting. The word testimony here in the original language that the book of Revelation was written in, it was written in Koine Greek. The original word for testimony is martureo, martureo. And, and it, it literally means this, to confirm or attest something on the basis of personal knowledge or belief to bear witness to be a witness. The word martureo, the word testimony, shows up 11 times in the book of Revelation, and it's where we get our word martyr from. And I talked about this a little bit last Sunday, but it is not our opinions that God desires for us to share with the world. It is our testimony. It is our witness. It is pointing people to the difference Jesus has made in our lives. And so for many of us, we need to spend time today reflecting what has Jesus done for you? I mean, that's the most powerful message you have to the world is what has Jesus done for you? So not only do Christians recognize that they're saved by Jesus, not by their behavior. Not only do we boldly share our testimonies, our stories, but number three, Christians love Jesus more than anything else. They love Jesus more than anything else. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. When faced with the reality that it was either ditch Jesus or die for Jesus, they loved him so much that they were willing to die for him. I gotta ask us a question. This is for me. This is for me, maybe for you. What difference is Jesus making in your life? Or or maybe another way to ask it is this. If Jesus was absent from your life, would anything be different? I I was thinking about when... um, you know, a few times throughout the year when uh, maybe Sarah, my wife, and, and our kids are off somewhere else and I'm at home. When I'm at home by myself, 
it's the absolute worst version of me. And maybe you're like this too. You maybe feel like you kind of got a schedule and got a routine together during your normal life. But then, you know, when Sarah and the kids are gone, it's the worst version of me. In fact, I feel like I revert to like sophomore in college version of Eric. And what I mean by that is when it's dinner time, I'm not, you know, turning on the oven. I'm not thinking of a nice, healthy, balanced meal. No, I'm going straight to the freezer and I'm grabbing three TV dinners, right? Not just one, not just two, three TV dinners, and I'm popping those puppies in the microwave at one minute, and I'm eating them, right? Or, or like when it comes to, you know, uh, I'm sitting on the couch, and I'll just, I'll watch a movie late into the night till 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. I'll, I'll fall asleep with all the lights on in the house, and part of that is because I'm like kind of afraid. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really watch scary movies. Like, the scariest thing I watch is Cocoa Melon, so like, I, I'm afraid of the dark, and so, but, but it's like the worst version of me comes out when Sarah is is gone. In, in other words, there is a noticeable difference in my life when Sarah is not a part of it. Could the same be true of Jesus in your life? Is there a noticeable difference when Jesus isn't a part of your life? Or is it noticeable, is it more noticeable what political party you align with? Is it more noticeable how passionate you are about the things that you have in this life? What is it that people, when they look at you, would say, this is what I notice first and foremost about this person? In other words, loving Jesus first Loving Jesus first actually helps you be a better spouse. Loving Jesus first helps you be a better parent. Loving Jesus first helps you be a better employee. Loving Jesus first helps you be a better citizen. Is it noticeable when Jesus isn't at the center of your life and my life. And then number four, Christians, Christians keep God's commands. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. We talked about the first part. We'll look at the second part. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Christians here are described as people who keep God's commands. Now, I, I gotta say this really clearly. It is absolutely certain throughout all of Scripture, the arc of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it is crystal clear God loves you. And maybe you tuned in today or you're listening right now in your car with your family or friends or by yourself and you just need to hear this. It is clear, Genesis to Revelation, God loves you. He created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He died on a cross and rose from the dead for you. He has plans and purposes for you. He is preparing all of eternity for you. God loves you. The question of scripture is this. Do you Love God. That's why it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, will you receive him? Will you 
believe in him. See, the question is, do you and I love God? And in Jesus' own words, in John chapter 14, verse 15, he simply said this, if you love me, keep my commands. You see, if we're gonna be biblical Christians, we're gonna define what it means to love Jesus on his terms. Why? Because he created us, he died for us, he's preparing heaven for us, he gets to dictate the terms. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. You see, friends, Satan has no problem when people claim to be Christians. Satan is enraged at people whose Christianity compels them to obey God. And I want to lovingly just ask you this question. Have you claimed the label of Christian or are you living as a Christian in obedience to God's word? Because Satan doesn't care about a label, but a life compelled by Christ and his love to obey God's word, oh, oh, oh that's, that's a life that, that Satan is enraged over. A couple months ago, someone here at our church named Dominic Portesi, he, uh, he came up to me after church one Sunday and he handed me this piece of paper and he said, hey, while you were preaching, this quote by C.S. Lewis came to my mind and I wanted to give it to you and and so he handed me this napkin and on it said, my hope is that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I am out of the fight. This has really become a life motto for me. I mean, th this is what I'm living for. And, and, and I, I, wanna, I need to constantly be asking myself the question. I want to ask you the question that on the day that you and I die, will hell even notice? Will the enemies of the church, will the enemies of God even notice? See, I want to live my life in such a way that it matters. That it matters for all of eternity. Well, friends, let's go back to one of Satan's favorite ways to mess with us. We discover here that, that Satan actually uses lies, pride, and slander to tear the world apart. These are his methods. Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Let's watch what happens. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? So we already know that the dragon is Satan. But the question is, who is the beast? And there have been lots of conversations around this. Let's look at what J. Uh, Stuart Russell says. J. Stuart Russell, who's, who's a preterist, he says, this beast is not just an institution, 
but a person. Specifically, as we shall see, it is the Emperor Nero. This is because particularly the way the Bible looks at things, the two could be considered as one. The empire was embodied and represented in the reigning Caesar, Nero. Thus, St. John's prophecy can shift back and forth between them or consider them both together under the same designation. Or let's look at how a, a futurist might think about this. Let's go to our next quote by John Woolvard, who's a futurist. He says, this passage is first of all a revelation of the revived Roman Empire in its period of worldwide dominion. But more specifically, this paragraph directs attention to the evil character who exercises satanic power as the world dictator. I love what Bruce Chilton says. He, he says, the enemy of God and the church is always beast in its various historical manifestations. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13, verses five to six. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Friends, remember, Satan's native tongue is lies. He, he's, he's prideful. He, he blasphemes God. He slanders God. It's why Jesus, in his own words, in John chapter 8, verses 44, verse 44, said, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, talking about Satan, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Then it's about to get real interesting. And these next few verses, there has been so much controversy, so much conversation. So we're going to read it together, and then we're going to break it down together. Look at chapter 13, verses 15 to 18. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 660. Six. So let's rewind back to the beginning of that section. We discover that this second beast uh, creates this image in the first beast, in the image of the first beast. And, and some would point to the emperor Domitian, who, who he, he had a rule, he had, he had a statue built for himself, and he had a rule that whenever someone passed by it, they would have to bow down in its presence or they would die. Or maybe some are thinking of in Daniel chapter 3 in the Old Testament when King Nebuchadnezzar had a statue built and if you didn't bow down before it, you would be thrown into the furnace. And then it talks about this image, this statue sort of being animated. And, and many who have studied the first century say that there were groups of people who literally made a living falsely animating statues as a way of imitating God. 
And then it talks about the mark of the beast. And it talks about the number 666. What's going on here exactly? In the first century, let's talk about the mark of the beast for a minute. In the first century, there was an imperial seal or a mark that was stamped on commercial documents. And you couldn't engage in commerce without it. Some conclude that the mark on the right hand was a counter to what most Jews would carry around in their left hands, which were boxes called tephilin or phylacteries, which, which had God's word written inside of them. There was even a mid-third century emperor who demanded certificates of sacrifice to the emperor in order to participate in commerce and to escape persecution. Well, what about this number of the beast, 666? Most first century readers would have connected 666, which it's important that in the original language, it's not the, the number 666, but it's actually 666. They would have connected it with the spelling of Nero Caesar, who was also known as a beast of a man for murdering his own mother. John, wanting to write in a way that the Romans would not be able to make sense of it, was probably thinking of Nero, but needed to identify him without being detected. Now the Hebrew form, we're going to show this up on the screen, the Hebrew form of Caesar Nero is N-R-W-N-O-S-R. And, and this, this would be pronounced Neron Kaiser. And each of those seven letters had a Hebrew value to them. The N was 50, the R was 200, the W was six, the N is 50, the O is 100, the S is 60, and the R again is 200. And if you add up all of those together, the grand total is 666. Now, during the Reformation era, many Catholics built a theology around 666, actually referring to Martin Luther. While many Protestants countered with reasons that 666 signified the Pope. Others have suggested that the number of the beast refers to Hitler or a dictator or political leader from the past or maybe one into the future. And I can guarantee you that if you go deep into Google, like onto the 10th, 11th, 12th page of the search engine, you could find somebody articulating why your favorite or least favorite politician is also the beast, 660. Six, But I love, I love, I love that we're not going to end our time there. Because while it's true, Satan uses lies, pride, and slander to, tell, to tear the world apart. That we're going to land the plane talking about Jesus. That Jesus actually holds us together by making us patient, faithful, and wise. Revelation chapter 13 verses 9 and 10 says, whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. In other words, we're called to respond to the suffering we will experience the way Christ has. 
And why would we do that? Well, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, he kind of describes Revelation 12 and 13 and what the Christians are experiencing this way. Their only means of resisting the enemy's attack is patient endurance and faithful confession. This may mean suffering and death, but it was precisely by suffering and death that their leader, Jesus, had conquered. It is to Jesus, not to Caesar, that the war, that world dominion belongs. It is to Jesus, not Caesar, who is Lord of history. And those who confess, those who confess Jesus faithfully before Caesar, and Caesar's representatives participate in his victory and kingly power. Now, I want to just share a, a pastoral moment together. I, I want to just encourage you. I, I, I want to point something out that God has just used to really minister and encourage me. And it's just this beginning line in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. And the line says this, this calls for wisdom. And as I was studying and preparing this sermon, that, that phrase, those four words, this calls for wisdom, just kept, just kept jumping off the page at me. Because I was thinking to myself, there's a lot in life that doesn't call for wisdom. There's a lot in life, there's a lot of things in life you don't need to pray about. There's a lot of things in life that you don't need to seek God's wisdom for. For example, if, if, if you're asking the question, should I steal that piece of gum? You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to ask wisdom. You don't need to call your mentor. The answer is no. You shouldn't steal that pack of gum. Or, or, or maybe you're asking the question, should I eat something healthy? Or should I get Chick-fil-A and Raising Cane's? The answer is always Chick-fil-A and Raising Cane's. Or, or healthy, I don't know. But, but you don't need to pray about that. You just make that decision. Maybe you're, you're thinking about, should I invest in my retirement? Or should I pull it all out, head to Vegas, and put it all on red? No, don't pray about that. Don't seek wisdom. Keep investing. Don't go to Vegas. Keep investing. Or, or maybe you just finished watching Top Gun. I just saw Top Gun. In fact, I had the privilege of seeing it twice. And, and maybe after watching Top Gun, you're thinking, should I drive my Honda Civic the way that Tom Cruise drove, flew those airplanes? No, no, don't drive the way he flew those airplanes. But friends, if we're honest, this moment that we find ourselves in, in our culture, in our life, this moment calls for wisdom. And maybe some of you just got a really, really scary diagnosis. Maybe some of you have some really fractured family relationships that you don't know how they're going to mend. Maybe some of you are wrestling to keep in close relationships with your kids or your parents. Maybe for some of you, you are in financial distress and you don't see a way out. Can I invite you to just pause for a minute and breathe? Can I invite you to pause for a minute and to pray? To invite God to speak to you, to search the scriptures. And as you do that, I want to remind you of three things real quick. That, that wisdom, wisdom, number one, leads us to please Jesus. Paul said, and find out what pleases the Lord. That wisdom will always lead you to please Jesus, which means that for some of you that are facing 
an incredibly difficult situation, respond now the way Jesus responded then. Number two, wisdom leads us to represent Jesus. It's why Paul said we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And so in whatever that impossible situation is, where you're trying to figure out how to represent Jesus, remember to speak the words of Jesus in the way of Jesus. In fact, I'm convinced that if we speak the words of Jesus, not in the way of Jesus, then we haven't really spoken the words of Jesus. That the way that we go about it matters. We want to imitate Christ in every response, in every word, in every action. And then lastly, number three, wisdom. Wisdom leads us to come to Jesus. Remember Jesus' words, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Some of you, you're barely hanging on and Jesus says, I want you to come to me. I want to wrap my arms around you. I want you to open your heart to me so that I can deposit my love and truth into you so that I can fill you up, so that I can encourage you, so that I can speak to you. I just want you to come to me. And and some of you just got that news and you just don't know what to do with it. It feels so overwhelming. I want to encourage you to trust Jesus with this like you trusted him with that. To trust Jesus with this broken relationship like you trusted him in the past. To trust Jesus with this diagnosis like you trusted him in the past. To trust Jesus with this lack of employment or this broken relationship or this uncertainty about the future like you trusted him in the past. And when people come at you and and they want you to comment or respond or over a text or social media and it it feels so intense and, and, and everything in you says, well, I've got to respond right now immediately. Would you just, this is what I'm doing. Maybe it'll work for you. This is what I'm doing. I'm resisting the urge to immediately react. And instead I'm seeking God. And then when somebody says, I want your opinion on this send this text, send this post. I'm refusing, I'm trying, and I haven't done this perfectly. And there've been times where I have responded and I wish I had done it differently. But here's what I'm committing to doing is to just saying, hey, can we grab a meal? Can we go talk about this in person so we can hear each other so that we could have a dialogue? I think that's what wisdom leads us to. I don't know what your next step is after this message, but 20 of our students at summer camp decided that their next step was to get baptized. To say that Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior and I'm committed to following you for the rest of my life. And as you watch this baptism video, as you watch our purpose students getting baptized, I want you to reflect on what Jesus is calling you to do with this.